suggest that ideas first is inherently flawed and it will never be the most effective approach to innovation because it ends up being a guessing game that's based on hope and luck. And it will really never be more than that. Welcome to Business Owners Radio. Business Owners Radio, where established business owners get the latest insights, strategies, and practices to grow a sustainably profitable business. And now, taking care of business, your hosts, Craig Moen and Shai Gilad. Welcome to Business Owners Radio, Episode 103. In today's show, we'll be exploring the Jobs to Be Done Growth Strategy Matrix by Tony Ulwick. Learn how to use this simple framework to make sure you're deploying the best possible strategy to win in your marketplace. Good morning, Craig. Good morning, Shai. How are you today? Doing great, man. How are you? Really good, but really looking forward to today's episode. You really put together a good one for us and was reading intently about Tony. And tell me more about this book you found. So Tony Olwick is the author of several books, including Jobs to Be Done, Theory to Practice. In my time working with startups, we use so many tools that are related around this theory of jobs to be done. And I have to tell you that this particular strategy matrix is really one of my favorites. Yeah, I was really impressed with Tony's background and the methodology and structure that he went through to evolve this theory and sort of evolved from a lot of the work that he did. He spent over 25 years studying the dynamics of product and service innovation. And a lot of these successful innovative strategies that hundreds of markets had produced and dozens of Fortune 500 companies. So with all of that, they really studied it and evolved this jobs to be done theory. And the theory really generated a nice format. I wish I could paint that visually in front of our listeners, but we'll talk about that some more. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, Tony is really a thought leader, if not the biggest thinker in the space of innovation and business strategy. And, you know, him along with Clay Christensen is a Harvard educator we talk about a lot on this show. Competing Against Luck is one of his books, which also really talks a lot about jobs to be done as a framework. And it's really built around like this core idea, right? And the idea is that most entrepreneurs and innovators will apply an ideas-first approach to creation. So what do I mean by that? Ideas-first means, what is the idea you had when you came up with your business, right? Oh, man, I bet I could do that better than this competitor. Or I bet people would be excited if I opened a restaurant on that corner. Or you you can apply it to anything like, oh, man, I really don't like any of the note-taking software that's available in the marketplace. And, you know, I'm a pretty good coder. I'm going to write a better software. And I bet you people would really like that. But the challenge with that is that jobs to be done suggest that ideas first is inherently flawed and it will never be the most effective approach to innovation because it ends up being a guessing game that's based on hope and luck. And it will really never be more than that. That really breaks through a lot of paradigms from history as far as if I find something that I think the public needs and I can make a great product to it, they'll just come to my door. It'll just happen, right? Oh, that's so true. You know, one of my strategy professors' favorite thing that always sticks with me is the market is not your mama. (laughs) (laughs) The market doesn't care, right? Mom will always love you. Always buy your products and services and tell people how wonderful you are. But the market is a shrewd customer. 
And so all of us have gone through this. You know, one of my favorite ones, Craig, is this myth that we tell business owners, and I'm sure everyone has heard this before, right? That, hey, you know what? No matter what you start doing, you're going to end up doing something else. You never end up making money with the thing you started with. And that's true, right? I mean, what has your experience been? Yeah, absolutely. You think you're on the right course, and then you find that new shiny rock, or it evolves into something even better that, oh, excellent, yes. So here's something annoying. It turns out it doesn't have to be like that at all. In fact, you know, this framework is one of the tools we use when we're working with new entrepreneurs or anyone trying to start a new venture to help them avoid that pain. The reason why most of us in our journey as business owners have to shift and change direction a lot is because we actually took an ideas-based approach. And we really didn't look at the marketplace through another lens and think through from a customer-facing standpoint, how are they trying to make progress in some way? And how am I going to solve that problem in a way that's better, but meaningfully better than their other choices in the marketplace? And that's exactly what jobs theory is all about. And looking at this framework, very quickly, you can grasp where you lie in the products and services that you have today and where you might want to go in the future. So jobs to be done as a theory is really simple. It's simply a fundamental notion that people buy products and services to help them get a job done. So for instance, one way to think about a car is you could think about, hey, if I'm going to produce a new vehicle, how does this car better than another car in the marketplace, right? Why would some people want a truck versus a compact car versus an SUV versus a sports car versus an electric car versus an electric sports car? And there's different customer personas and different reasons why people might choose a different kind of car. But the job to be done, the underlying job to be done is transportation and maybe more specifically ground transportation. So when you think about services like Uber or Lyft, let's say I live in the suburbs and I am married and my partner and I both work for a living. And so maybe we're trying to figure out if we need a second car or not. Well, we might look at it and say, you know, we can only budget $10,000 to solve this problem. So we're going to need to, first of all, start by looking at cars that cost $10,000, right? But another way to look at it could be to say, I need ground transportation and I can budget $10,000 to get from point A to point B. Then I might map out, well, how many times a week do I need to make that commute or go to different places? Then I might go to Lyft or Uber and start estimating the cost of those rides. And when I compare those costs and the value received, because let's face it, if I'm riding in the back of the Uber, I also don't have to focus on driving, which means I also might be able to make phone calls or do other things or just relax. And I may find out that that's a much better solution than getting a second car because the job to be done was transportation. The job to be done wasn't what car should I buy. The job to be done versus the emotion that can create a whole different environment of decision making. Well, you know, emotions are actually tied pretty closely to jobs to be done. So when we talk about the different dimensions, I'm really glad you mentioned that because, you know, there's the functional job to be done, which is that core, how do I get from A to B? right? That's the functional job. I could use a bicycle, maybe a train, a car, a horse. I could walk. All of those choices are things that I would hire to get the job done. So I may hire a bicycle on some days because there's also an emotional thing, which is make me feel better about my fitness choices, right? And that could be an underlying job. So we look at emotional 
social and functional dimensions in how we make choices. And as you just pointed out, frequently emotions do drive those decisions. Even more so, we may choose something functionally that seems to be less efficient, but but emotionally, Matt, yeah, it feels good. That's exactly right. So just to use that bicycle thing a little bit more, you know, let's say it's a gorgeous day out. I may have a motorcycle in my garage. I love riding motorcycles. And, you know, maybe I just need to go a half a mile or a mile away. I may take the bicycle because that bicycle was my great grandfather's. And every time I ride it, it makes me think about him. And that just makes me feel good. So if you were trying to sell me on the idea of riding my motorcycle more, you would probably be like, I can't believe this guy's taking the bicycle when the motorcycle will get him there that much faster. Yeah, those other elements in the decision process, very hard to attain on a marketing basis to discern those. So you're really focusing on what are the fundamentals that decision making can be applied to that we actually can measure. And this matrix and this theory of what is the job to be done and how many different ways can we accomplish providing a solution to the job that needs to be done? He's got a great matrix for that. Yeah, he really does. And, you know, so basically, you know, what Tony and his team have observed is that when you use jobs to be done to examine different products, successes and failures, and hopefully light bulbs are coming on for our listeners right now as they're thinking about really what is the underlying job that my customers are trying to solve that I help them get done, right? So when you look at your own business and you think about times where you've introduced a product or maybe changed your service a little bit and you had some success or where you failed, you can observe different things happen, right? You win in the marketplace if you help people get a job done in a way that's somehow better and or less expensive than their other available options. And it's usually a combination of the two. And that's what this framework is really built on. So basically, it looks like a square with four quadrants in it. And of course, we have a PDF on the website you'll be able to download so you can experiment with this little bit yourself. So it looks at it this way, right? First of all, you could look at, okay, does my product or service perform better than the other choices and it's more expensive? If that's the case, that's like a premium model. And usually that appeals to an underserved customer. That means customers have unmet needs and they're willing to pay more in order to get the job done better because the other options in the marketplace are not meeting all of their needs. So the next quadrant we look at is, a better performing, less expensive product. Well, let's face it, who doesn't want to buy something that performs better and costs less, right? Mm-hmm. And again, you know, just using something as simple as Uber versus taking a taxi cab. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you could have a worse performing, less expensive product. Now, that's going to appeal to customers that are overserved and they don't have unmet needs. And it can also appeal to non-consumers. That means people that already are not doing something. So to me, the classic example of this, when I say worse performing, it doesn't mean it's a worse product than the other things that are available. But think about something as simple as Airbnb in the marketplace. If you think of Airbnb as the job to be done, at least from the consumer that's renting the Airbnb, the underlying job to be done is I need a place to stay. But again, we talk about the emotional, social, and functional needs about that. Well, in the marketplace, there's no shortage of hotels to choose from. But what happened is, is, you know, you're going to get in some cases, and the original notion for Airbnb was just that, an air mattress. You could rent an air mattress on somebody's floor. So yeah, that's worse performing than a hotel room is, right? But it's the price factor and the ease. 
And what this allowed people to do and really what the original innovation was based on is it brought in a lot of non-consumers. It was competing against nothing, people that otherwise wouldn't even go on the trip because college students and folks that didn't have enough income to always be able to go on a trip, it reduced their costs and made it more affordable for them to go. Created the market, yeah. Yeah, it really created the market. And then, of course, it was able to move up market as well and and offer some other unique and very emotional experiences. You know, a lot of times when we think about Airbnb now, so functionally, job to be done is I need a place to stay, right? Emotionally, I want to feel like I'm part of the city that I'm exploring. I want to have an experience that makes me feel more involved than just a generic traveler, right? You don't want to stay on the interstate? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And then, you know, from a social context, it might make you feel a little more cool because you're using the latest technology. You're able to have more choices over those decisions. And it gives you some status because within your peer group, you may look like a smart consumer or you may look like someone who's more interesting or more worldly because you really take the time to try to really experience your vacations versus just booking another night's stay at a generic hotel. And then we're into the final one where it's less and less from the standpoint. Well, that's, that's probably not very intuitive, right? <laughs> Why would somebody want to buy, as you said, in quadrant four, a worse performing, more expensive product? So I would ask you, when's the last time you've been to a sports event? Oh, yeah. Being a Packers fan and a Badgers fan, yeah, and heading into them. And it's quite an experience. So how much do you pay for a beer at one of those events? Reluctantly, you know, it can range anywhere from six to 10 bucks. Yeah, right. Exactly. And are there more choices or less choices when you're than when you're at the bar or the supermarket? I don't get a choice. It's whatever bought the contract. Yeah, we got both kinds. We got Bud and Bud Light. <laughs> that's right. So, so yeah, you could argue that that's like a worse performing, but more expensive product, right? But And it only appeals when there's limited or no alternatives available, right? So that's, yeah. that's not the typical scenario, but this is when, you know, it, it never feels great as the consumer to overpay for things, right? Especially yeah. with less choice. Yep. But, you know, there are a few concessionaires that really rely on that to be able to add some margin into what can be a really challenging business model. So I've got some existing product and service capabilities. How do I apply this to something I've already done? Yeah, so I think the place to start here, and really to be clear, what we're trying to do is map out where our products and services sit compared to the other choices people get to make, right? So when you think of competition, try not to think of competition just as what other businesses provide the same services and products that I provide. What you're trying to understand is what are the competing options that a customer has, including not buying anything at all. So the place to begin with this matrix, again, I would encourage you to download a PDF of this from our site as a place to start and look at the different quadrants. And it always starts with the customer. So ask yourself about the customers in the marketplace in general that you're in. Are these customers underserved? In other words, is it truly that there's just not enough options available for them to get the job done? And if so, you're probably able to charge a premium for that. So in a differentiated strategy, right, this is when you have a population of underserved customers and you could ask yourself, okay, are our products and services better than those options? And if they are, are we charging enough or could we actually be increasing our prices, right? So that's one thing that you can find out by using this. 
So there's a lot of examples. You know, one from recent years would be the Nest thermostat. You know, there wasn't really competition in the thermostat marketplace. It was just something on the wall you didn't think about a lot. But Nest came along with some product innovations to really help us manage our utilization and access it in a way that was really easy to use. And they were able to charge a premium in what otherwise could have been considered a commodity market. But there was underserved customers there. You know, maybe you're someone that likes to go to Whole Foods because you like organic products. Well, there's plenty of grocery stores you could go to, but Whole Foods can charge a premium because they know that you're willing to pay more for the best possible produce that you can get your hands on and other unique food products you won't be able to find in other places. So if you're in a business that's offering this, or if you understand that your competitors are already doing this, then you have to think about how can I position my products and services in a way that can win. So Shai, let's talk next about the dominant strategy as far as doing a a similar type of thing, great value, but at a lower cost. Yeah, well, you know, again, we we talked about already the, the classics Uber and Airbnb. There's a reason this is called a dominant strategy because when you can show up and get the job done better and do it for less money, you're going to win almost every time, right? Who doesn't want to buy something that works better and pay less for it? So again, in thinking about that, is that the position that you're in? If so, good for you. You're probably doing fantastic. If not, and you're in a marketplace that's mature, that has a lot of competitors, you might ask yourself, is there an opportunity for us to launch a new product or service with a dominant strategy that could really turn things on its head? And how could that make us more competitive in the market? It's great fun to categorize where you are and to be able to go to the next level. And even on the next theory segment on disrupted strategy, these are existing areas, but to come out with something that's not necessarily better, but so much easier to use and fits a bill at a a much more mass audience. Yeah. You know what I really love about disruptive strategy and, and really in a way to me, that's also kind of like this holy grail, right? Dominant strategy is really difficult. And it's amazing when people do it right. And that's why they become household names when you and get it's that right. expensive, usually. And it's expensive. You know, it can be really expensive at scale. So disruptive strategy is a concept that Clay Christensen, who we talked about earlier, really pioneered. And the concept of disruptive strategy is when you look at what looks like a mature marketplace, in other words, consumers are actually overserved. There's a ton of offerings and there's plenty of choices for them. What we tend to see, though, is that there becomes like feature creep or feature bloat. Companies have a hard time differentiating because there's so many players in the marketplace. So they just start to add different features, which may or may not matter to the customer. And that usually opens up an opportunity for someone to come in and sell something more cheaply that deliberately has less features. So in a way, that's what we mean by you're doing it worse, (laughs) but you're charging less. And if you retain the thing that people care about, man, you can really turn things on its head. So Dollar Shave Club was one. You know, these guys had an exit that was over a billion dollars when they were bought by Unilever. And that was over a relatively short time. And that innovation was really on how to deliver a slightly less quality razor with less choices, but their delivery of it was the thing that captured people's convenience. Yeah. It's amazing how they really focused on the job to be done. And the job to be done here is make sure I don't run out of razors and I don't have to stop on the way home to pick up more. And yeah, that's exactly it. Just simplify it down to its essence and provide great service. 
Yeah, I completely agree. So it really, it's one of those things where it's like, you have to understand your customers and the progress they're trying to make. When you look at it through that lens, you might find opportunity in your own business where you might feel now like you are constantly butting your head up against these other competitors. And there could be this whole new market where you could take them by surprise. If you just take a little time to think through this and learn more about your customers and what their struggles are. And that brings us to the discrete section and its strategy. Yeah. And so, you know, a discrete strategy, you know, this is probably location-based. And what I mean by that is usually your customers are restricted in some way, right? They don't have a lot of good options available. Well, at Tyson's too, they just opened up a food emporium kind of thing. And they're very clear that it's credit cards only. And we were there, we got some coffee and here's this guy who wants to pay with cash. <laughs> the signs are everywhere. Yeah, uh, it's, it's frustrating, you know, so. but I think when we think of a discrete strategy, I think the simplest way to think about it is as the customer, you're probably trapped somewhere. Yep. Yep. <laughs> we talked about, you know, a sporting event, uh, a movie theater where you're paying 10 bucks for popcorn yeah. or a, an airport perhaps. Mm-hmm. And, and there's just not a lot of other choices. Yeah. And so, you know, there's a lot of examples of this and you probably know if you're in that position and good for you if you are, but it's probably not a place where you're going to try to introduce something unless you see an opportunity to put yourself in that position, mm-hmm. but there's going to be some scarcity usually related to the environment in some way that you can leverage. It's totally susceptible to a disruptive strategy. These are the next disruptive strategy solutions. And that really brings us to, there's really a fifth strategy here, and and you'll see it in the matrix, kind of sits right in the middle. And what this looks at, and a lot of our business owners might relate to this, is sustaining strategy. What we mean by this is you're pursuing a strategy where you introduce a product or service that gets the job done slightly better or for slightly less money. And there's a lot of offerings like that. Here's what I would tell you about sustaining strategy. If you're spending your time doing that without considering other options for strategy and growing your business, eventually somebody's going to eat your lunch <laughs> because, because really it's low risk because you're just marginally tweaking your service offerings and you're probably doing something that someone else could replicate if they'd really like to. So you constantly, even if you think that, oh yeah, that's pretty much what we're employing right now, this is a good opportunity to do a reset and evaluate, hey, what other strategies for different products and services could we provide? How does this look in the marketplace and where's an opportunity to win? Yeah, it's a huge opportunity to look at the other four segments and see where you could go. Hopefully going to the upper two segments, moving your product forward rather than potentially creating the next dinosaur. Yeah, exactly. We can talk about Kodak. We can talk about Blockbuster. Is that really where you want to end up on the cutting room floor? Mm -hmm. Excellent (laughs) examples. So, Sean, what should business owners be doing next to get started here? Well, you know, surely this was a sort of a quick and dirty overview of this concept, and hopefully it it got you thinking today. Uh, I would say the first thing you should do is go to the website. We have a free downloadable copy of Tony Ulwick's Growth Strategy Matrix. Also, you can access a free video of Tony explaining more about the concept and how you can apply this strategy to your own business. By using the framework, you can evaluate where you are in the marketplace versus your competitors and look at the opportunities that you might have there for new products and services where you're most likely to win. 
Finally, you know, I encourage you to read the book. I mean, it's really brilliant. He's done a lot of great work here. Uh, we have links to the book, you know, of course, with our partnership with audible.com. If you're interested in an audio book, you can download a free copy and get a 30 day free trial as well. The book is jobs to be done theory to practice again by Anthony, Tony Ulwick. This episode has been sponsored by Align for Business, providing owner and executive team coaching, as well as business consulting to grow your business. That's Aligned, the number four, business.com. Thank you for joining us on Business Owners Radio. We hope you enjoyed today's show. As always, you can read more about each episode along with links and offers in the show notes on our website, businessownersradio.com. We want to hear your feedback. Please leave comments on this show or suggestions for upcoming episodes. Tell your fellow business owners about the show. And, of course, you would love the stars and comments on iTunes. Till next time, keep taking care of business.